On today's episode of Bad in the Boondocks, we talk about the Redstone Cult and Lamb Kwakwe. You're listening to Bad in the Boondocks, baby. Bad in the Boondocks. Bad in the Boondocks. People put it down, but what you're supposed to do in a small town. Bad in the Boondocks. Bad in the Boondocks. Lord, have mercy, can't help being bad in the Boondocks. Before we get started with today's episode, we want to tell you just a little bit about Podcorn, who is our sponsor for this week's episode. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities such as host-read ads, interview segments, topic discussions, and much more. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. And most importantly, you never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is there to support you at every step and ensure that you're protected and compensated for the work that you do for brands. Click the link in my show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. Thanks, Podcorn. All right. Hey, and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. As always, I am one of your hosts, Stan. And I am Drew. How's it going, everybody? It's going pretty good. Good thing I wasn't asking you, but it's okay. Well... So, I think I'm going to go ahead and get right on into it. Well, wow, you are being very boring today. I can assure you that. Please check out Instagram and look up Bad in the Boondocks and you will find us there. Um, we have funny things on there, different things, and um, cases that we do every week. So go and check that out. Fine. If you want to be boring and go go right ahead and get into the case, that's fine. But I mean, you normally have some some type of news during the week. But I guess you're too boring. So go ahead, go ahead. Well, Whatever. I'm doing the Redstone Cult, no, the Red Crown Stone. King. Oh, I love cults. This is a very unknown cult. But how could a cult terrorize a small Arizona town for over a decade and get away with it? Well, that remains the subject of a lot of debate, especially among the survivors who were there. There's some that say that a solid sense of Arizonan independence kept people from calling for help from the big cities, that they preferred death and torture to the dishonor of accepting aid from decadent city slickers. What? That doesn't... What? Just continue. That they didn't want people from city folk coming and helping them. Okay. Okay, that that better understands. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Well, if you would have just explained it whenever I asked. Others say that fear among the locals overwhelmed all sense of reason and 
with a single road manned and fortified to prevent escape, caused an entire town to turn into a prison camp with apocalyptic aims. And there's some who whisper, much more quietly, that it was because they were willing collaborators in the monstrous horror that was the Redstone Cult. How Crown King, Arizona, a former mining town in the Bradshaw Mountains, could have been held by a fanatic band of self-destructive flesh mutilators is up for debate. But what is not up for debate is what happened on October 14th of 1980. On that day, a United States Air Force F-16 from Luke Air Force Base lost its armed payload somewhere over the sky of the Bradshaw Mountains. The payload was a pair of 500-pound gravity bombs. Officially, they slipped because of a mechanical failure on a training mission. They supposedly fell harmlessly away from man and beast in the thin forest of Crown King's Mountains. The Air Force report commends the weather for averting a forest fire thanks to a rather rain-soaked October. According to the Air Force, it was a mere accident. Cold War oversight and an era full of lost bombs and training mishaps. But according to the lore of Crown King, it was a deliberate military operation designed to obliterate an unnatural evil brought into this world by the Redstone Cult. Everything but the payload drop remained out of the newspapers. That's testament not only to the effectiveness of the official narrative, but also the confusion of the unofficial. These unofficial narratives agree on only a handful of facts and a few events, and it's difficult to get a real account of the cult. What is generally agreed upon is that the cult began back east in the 1920s, either in Boston or New York, by a group of philosophers convinced that World War I had opened a great psychic wound that would bring about cataclysmic horror. This horror is described as a consuming force and a restoring one. Regardless of its intent, it was a world-shaping force that would ultimately see the end of civilization. Discovering a rare reddened gem in the archives of some unknown university, the cult had named themselves the Redstone Faith and they set about compiling an even more elaborate and confusing system of beliefs designed to compel the entry of the force they worshipped. During the Second World War, they migrated further west, certain that the psychic damage of another world war had produced conductive conditions to carry out their grotesque plot. They settled in Nevada in the late 1940s and found themselves drawn ever closer to the spectacles of the atomic bombs that set off in the desert. But in doing so, they came to the attention of the U.S. government, who found their interest in atomic warfare too close to communist subversion. In 1949, several members of the cult were rounded up by the FBI. The crackdown shook the cult to its core, and where before it was a group of learned men and women from academia, the experience of arrest and release left many disillusioned, especially as the 1940s became the 1950s, and a lot of the cult's central 
ideas failed to come true. Atomic bombs did not unleash their god horror, nor did bloody wars elsewhere seem to create the psychic tear that was necessary to fulfill their prophecy. By the 1960s, there were only a handful of believers who had retreated into the Arizona hinterlands and had settled on the small, former mining town of Crown King. Here, they were found by Dr. Maximilian Forrester. Forrester, a Los Angelino, who had lost his medical license, was an extreme believer in the psychic potential of destruction of the human body and persuaded many young people in the tumultuous 1960s to follow him to his own retreat in the California desert. But the watchful eye of the law loomed too closely over his shoulder, especially in the wake of the Manson family murders in 1969. He decided to take his followers to the hidden highlands of Arizona and there discovered the work of a bustling redstone cult in Crown King. Forrester saw the immediate potential in their goals and merged his own cult with theirs. Forrester was a deviant with an obsession with the refashioning of the body into extreme distortions of itself. His surgical tools were often at work cutting and slicing and just sticking together different followers who were rarely allowed anesthesia. He would just cut off body parts and attach it to other people's bodies. and He was trying to create a very specific type of human. He was also powerfully charismatic. And by the early 1970s, he had taken charge of not only the Redstone cult, but much of the town of Crown King, who lived in fear of his dictates. Forrester produced the most monstrous of experiments to fulfill the Redstone's bloodlust, and while for a time he had a steady stream of tortured volunteers, he eventually was forced to impress members into the service of his bloody duties. One such experiment was described by a survivor. The incident apparently took place in 1975 at the height of the cult's power. Martin Walterman, a Crown King resident attended a public surgery. His version of events are recorded on a now-deleted GeoCities blog on Arizona Horror. They were last retrieved in 2004. This is his description. By then, the sheriff stopped visiting the Bradshaws and on account of the rumors and the lack of welcome. Flattened tires and smashed-in windows had convinced the sheriff that patrolling the mountains wasn't worth it. That left Dr. Forrester in charge, and with his inner circle of red hoods, he was unleashed. People who tried to leave town got caught more often than not, though a couple did slip away in the early days. And if you got caught trying to escape, that's when he'd put you on the slab. The slab, that was on the edge of town near their cabin that they used as their temple. It was outside in the trees, just a big, flat, natural rock pretty close to the ground. You had to crouch down to touch it, but Forrester had rigged up a table that sat over it. The slab, he said, was a sacred site. Nobody could approach it but the Red Hoods and Forrester himself. Nobody wanted to anyway on account of the smell and the things that happened there. 
just after we got confirmation that the sheriff wouldn't send deputies our way anymore, Forrester announced a big ceremony at the slab, a celebration for all the good work that had been done. Two kids that couldn't have been more than 20 were to take part. They were California kids, pretty new to the Bradshaws, lured up with the offers, offers of sex and drugs by a Red Hood recruiter. They'd been indulged like all the other new recruiters were. Weed was in steady supplies, Forrester kept a good crop of it, and magic mushrooms. But now it was time to pay up for all the free. Forrester had them standing side by side, naked. And that particular night, nobody felt confident to stay home, me included. The whole town, hundreds of us, crowded around the slab. The two kids, a young man and a young woman, were set down on the table, their arms and legs were tied together. Forrester stood over them, surrounded by the Red Hoods, and said something in a weird language he always spoke. Then he said, Flesh is flesh, we open it to open gates. That's when the cutting began. Those kids, they screamed. I don't know if they knew what was going to happen. They were pretty new, but there wasn't any mistaking it now as Forrester sliced them on their skin. Then he would take the skin off of one and put it on the other, back and forth, back and forth. He'd sew up a patch of skin, then pull it off, stick it to another place, pull it off, and stick it another place. They both passed out after a while, and that was lucky of them, though the Red Hoods kept trying to wake them up. We just all sat in silence. By that point, we'd seen enough things like this to avoid making a comment. I guess what was different this time around was the finale. When those two kids were too far gone to manage even a word, Forrester stood over them, soaked in blood, and took a giant knife and plunged into the young man's chest. He pulled it down real slow, and by the time he was done, there was two halves of the boy. The boy, he woke up and gave a short scream, but there wasn't much point. After that, Forrester stuck random bits of the boy onto the girl, sewed them up in place, and sent her away to the recovery ward. All things considered, it wasn't so much the mutilation that stuck with me. It was the fact that the girl woke up just as they were leading her away. Her eye, she only had one good eye by this point, shot open, and I think most expected a scream, but instead she limped over to Forrester with all those body parts dangling off her, and she, well, she hugged him, and she said pretty clearly, thank you, and I swear to my dying day she had a glow to her that seemed, well, it wasn't there before. In the late 1970s, Forrester's experiments grew even more bizarre and cruel. Yet for years, few heard from Crown King, few fled, and a steady stream of recruits from other states worked their way up the long road into the Bradshaws. A single exile in 1978 is on the record in Prescott as reporting the mysterious cult behaviors of the Redstone to the sheriff's office. But the sheriff dismissed the incident as a drug-induced hippie invention. It would take a bigger event than the ramblings of half-mad citizens to arouse the authorities, 
In early 1980, Luke Air Force Base detected an odd radar where there shouldn't have been any. It inspired a cursory investigation of Crown King. The sight of military men arrived and Crown King alarmed Forrester, who was convinced that the government would soon sweep in on the cult. He accelerated the pace of his experiments, believed that he was closing in on his final goal. He did not have to wait long. In summer 1980, the Air Force, convinced something nefarious was afoot, sent military police to arrest those associated with odd radar signal. Forrester had armed his handful of surviving followers, most had already died because of his experiments, and ordered them to hold off the MPs. A short gun battle ensued in which several soldiers and followers were killed, but Forrester ended up in custody. But there wasn't much of Forrester left to interrogate. His mind was already blown through with his obsession with the Redstone. He babbled incoherently to captors about sights and sounds that made little sense. Moreover, there was something dramatically changed about him. For Forrester, you see, had not escaped his own experiments. His form, his body, was mutilated now, and his appendages were mangled by self-surgery. Forrester's condition rapidly deteriorated and doctors and surgeons did what they could to keep him alive, but his body, how bad off it was, gave out just hours after his arrest. What did not end was the radar signal, which went from a simple blip to a recurring pattern. Repeated investigations turned up nothing at the site of the Redstone cult, nothing besides buried bodies and remnants of the horror of Forrester's time as death leader. Even the mythic redstone had vanished. But still the signal droned on and on. In late September of 1980, ham radio operators around the world began to detect the signal. And on October 4th, the USSR formally complained to the United States that a domestic signal was beginning to interfere with the operation of its satellites. Crown King was abuzz with military intelligence as the Air Force interviewed witnesses and compiled as much information as they could about the Redstone cult. The more information they gathered, the more alarmed the military acted. What was clear was that the radar signal was not a natural event, but a deliberate act by the Redstone cult. Its exact location was known, but repeated investigations turned up no direct source. It was just an ever-rising radar tone and a steep drop in temperature. The complaint by the Soviet Union spurred the Air Force brass to action. On October 14th, a lone F-16 jet lost its payload over the Bradshaws, and the signal quit. Well, almost. Ever so often, the signal associated with the Bradshaws would, on occasion, flicker back to life just for a brief moment. Often, these flickers would be associated with some kind of tragedy, a bus accident near on the nearby interstate or a fatal fire. They usually did not last long, but they kept on recurring year after year. 
almost as if a bolted door had been weakened, and that which was behind it was steadily pushing inwards with each moment, almost like a psychic tear. Okay. Well, I find it very disturbing that the man cuts off pieces of <laughs> the bodies and then cuts off the other one and then sews each other. That's messed up. That's not what a normal human being does. Well, especially not to yourself. Yeah, that's a little odd. It's I mean, very couldn't odd. just see him like with an arm dangling in between his chest or Yes, I could. Well, can't you see like a finger dangling where his penis is supposed to be? <laughs> or a penis on the forehead. <laughs> that would be something. Excuse me, sir, you have a dick on your forehead? <laughs> well, okay. Um Oh, it's peeing. Jesus Christ. Close your mouth, sir. <laughs> Don't want to get urine in your mouth. I think we'll take a short break now, and then whenever we come back, I will tell my story. And we're back. After that two seconds that you had to sit through. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay, I, um, I'm going to be talking about Lam Kwakwe. Lam Kwakwe. Lam Kwakwe. He was a taxi driver and used his cab as a hunting ground for female victims. Was he American? <laughs> well, obviously not. February 3rd, 1982. Lamb picked up female passengers outside of a restaurant named... I'm, I'm just going to tell you guys. I'm going to absolutely butcher some of these names. Sim Shasu. <laughs> Sim Tasatu. <laughs> she was Chan Fung Lan. She had met her sister and a few friends after work for some drinks. As Lam drove, Chan asked him to pull over. She opened the door and threw up on the street. She had too much to drink, obviously, and wasn't feeling well. Instead of continuing on the original route, she told Lam to take her back to the restaurant, but after a few minutes changed her mind again. Without any planning, Lamb pulled over the taxi and strangled Chan with a piece of electric wire he had had with him. He drove her to his family's home and dismembered her body and took photographs. This first kill would be the high he tried to replica replicate again and again. Well, the next seven months, Lamb would strangle, mutilate, perform necrophilia, and photograph <coughs> everything he did with three or more victims, including performing necrophilia on his victim's corpse. After that first murder, he got serious. He would tell police later that he brought, he bought special, Jesus Christ, specialist, <laughs> equipment to dismember, including surgical instruments. He also obtained formaldehyde so he could prefer, preserve the trophies he wanted to keep from his victims. Taking risk and getting off, well, Lamb used a camera with film to photograph his victims and their body parts. He didn't develop the film himself, so he had to take it take them to various photo shops to be processed. 
once when he dropped off the negatives. A technician questioned him about what he saw on the prints. Lamb shrugged it off, saying that it was a lab technician at the university, and the photos were for medical research. August 17, 1982, a manager called police at a Hong Kong Kodak shop in Mong Kok. <laughs> the manager told police that a man had come in with a roll of film that dictated that depicted female bodies in various states of dismemberment. The photos showed a woman naked and a close-ups of body parts. The technician believed they looked staged as if for, porno, for pornographic means. The, sev, the severed breast photo proved these were not casual photos, but something sick and sinister. When police talked with Lamb, he said the photographs were taken by a friend who worked on a ship. He swore this friend would meet him, meet them shortly, but when the friend did not arrive, police took Lamb home to his parents' house on Kewa Chow Street, where his family was sitting down to dinner. They performed a search on the residence and found in the bedroom Land shared with his brother an ammunition box. Inside of the box were photographs of dismembered body parts. In the search, they also located videotapes of dismemberment, but the most shocking find was Tupperware containers that held female vaginas inside preserved formaldehyde. Another container held a severed breast. Lamb built up to murder. First, he bought a camera and snuck into women's restrooms and would aim the camera under a stall door and snap photos, but women started chasing him down the street. Screaming at him afterwards, he had to stop. He was afraid of getting caught. Well, at first, police believed that the whole family was involved and arrested not just Lamb but his father and brother, but after his brother attacked him in prison, Lamb told the officers that it was only him involved in the crimes, that his family had nothing to do with it. Lamb explained that with the first victim, Chan, he had driven her home in his taxi. The street was empty at 5 a.m. when he got home, and he just carried her inside past the sleeping night watchman inside their flat. He claims that he shoved her body under the sofa and then went to bed while he waited for his family to wake up. After they left for work, he got up and covered the bedroom floor he shared with his brother in plastic and dismembered the body in there. He said he used electric saw to cut up the body and took photos while he worked. After she was cut up and wrapped, he placed the pieces in the trunk of a taxi. He waited until the night to drop her in the Shingman River. The parts washed up on the shore about a week later. When police questioned Lamb if he felt bad for what he'd done, he said no. He said that the women were useless to society. And his victims were Chan Fung Lan, 21, her body was found in seven pieces in Shingman River in, in the New Territories. 
Chan Wan Kit, 31, her body was dumped in a rice bag near Tai Hang Road on Hong Kong Island. Ling Son Saw Wan, 29, her body was dumped in a rice bag near Tai Hang Road on Hong Kong Island. Ling Wa Sum, 17, her body was dumped in a rice bag near Tai Hang Road on Hong Kong Island. Well, because the victims had been dismembered and their features unrecognizable, it was hard to identify them. Two lecturers from the Prince Philip Dental Hospital created a system of photo superimposition that was used to ID the victims. They took um, anti-mortem photos of the possible victim and x-rays of the skulls of the found bodies. They would then superimpose the pictures and x-rays together and see if they matched, much like matching fingerprints. April 8, 1983, Lamb was put on trial for four counts of murder. The facts of the case were perverse, perverse and sickening, but what bothered people even more was the complete lack of remorse from the killer. Because of the Severe, <laughs> Jesus, I don't want to say it. Severity? Severity. Severity. It's not severity. Whatever. Sovereignty? I don't know. Save, I have no clue. You know that your microphone's on mute, right? No, it's not. Okay. S-A-V-A-G-E-R-Y. I have no idea. I have no clue. That just makes no sense. And the gruesome crime scene photos. Only men were allowed to serve on the jury. What is that t saying? What, the women aren't as strong as men? Um, that's just what they're saying. I'm not saying that. The trial lasted three weeks. Lamb was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to death by hanging. But... August 29, 1984, Lamb's sentence of death was commuted to life imprisonment. He is currently being held at the maximum security check pick prison on Land 2 Island. Dude, these names, bro. These names. And that's my story, but I'm telling you what. I told you I'll butcher these names. I think you probably got them all right. Sheck Pick Prison on Lantau Island. I have no clue. Langwai Som. Ling Sa Wan. Chen Wang Kit. So you're just going to butcher them over and Chen over? Chen Fong Lan. I think that's how you say them, really. I'm pretty sure now. I just had to, I just had to reread them again. You know. But that's our stories for you for this week. Um, I hope that you are still listening so that we can tell you goodbye. And to go to Facebook and go to our page, Bad in the Boondocks, get in touch with us or me because I'm the one on Facebook. Start up a conversation. Tell your friends about the podcast. Remember, you can rate and review us. That's always great. Yeah, it is always great. 
you know, we love getting reviews love and stuff. I love reading the reviews. So exciting. So if you just leave leave a kind or don't you be know, an asshole. Just don't be an asshole. Yeah, that's true. Just be a kind a kind soul and leave us a review. It really it, I mean it makes our day. Yeah. Helps our egos out. If anything. It doesn't really do anything for us. It kind of just really helps us our day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. But thank you for staying with us. As always, I've been Stan. And I'm always Drew. And we will see you next time. We'll talk to you next time. I always say that. <laughs>